0: You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look Podcast with Jonathan Capehart.
1: Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. It hasn't dominated the news as it has in weeks past, but Russia's war on Ukraine rages on. Here to bring us up to speed is the Washington Post Pentagon correspondent, Karin Demergian. Karin, welcome back to First Look.
2: Good to be with you, Jonathan.
1: And as, you know, breaking news goes, before we talk about Ukraine, um, I have to start off the conversation um, about the news that uh, we all woke up to, the assassination of the former prime minister of Japan, uh, Shinzo Abe. Um, This is huge. He was Japan's uh, longest, longest reigning prime minister, right?
2: Right. I mean, Shinzo Abe was a feature on the scene in the mid-aughts from 2006 to 2007, and then again from 2012 to 2020. So we've seen him with a succession, standing next to a succession of U.S. presidents. He's been a figure on the international stage for a long time, and he's been a larger-than-life figure even after stepping down two years ago. So the idea that this could happen to somebody like him, who's such a recognized figure, who's had so many partnerships with the international community... Um and also that it could happen in a place like Japan, which is infamous for having one of the tightest regulations nationally for gun ownership and for gun use. Um so it's not a, 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 it kind of boggles the mind a little bit that something like this could happen in a public place um, with a citizen being able to take a firearm and assassinate um, a former a recently former leader like that in this particular place.
1: Right. and and gun regu- regulations that are so tight, that the, um, the alleged assassin made his own gun. Um, right. You can s- see the pictures um, uh, of the gun online. Uh, that's how it tight the crazy. restrictions are.
2: Yeah, and it's a strange-looking firearm when you look at it. It's that barrel with the, the wires and things like that. It's 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 it. It also just goes to tell you, you know, that in this era of being able to do 3D printing and other things, you know, there are ways to get around regulations. We discuss this in the United States all the time in terms of where our gun laws are and where the capacity is to do things. We don't think about it being an issue in countries that seem to have a culture where the gun laws are so tightly regulated that our colleague Michelle Lee reported in her article about Abe's death that I think eight of the last 10 high profile shootings have been in the Yakuza, which is a Japanese criminal network, which is a very localized sort of um, concerns that would control and, and, and lead you to think, okay, well, that might be a place where you would see shooting and firearms deaths, not in the general public. It's just not something that happens in that country the same way, frankly, it happens in ours. Um, and also couple that with you know it being an assassination of such a revered figure, though a controversial figure at home, but an internationally revered figure it is that much more shocking.
1: Right. Um, Let's turn our attention to Ukraine. Um, The Russian military has made advances. They're gaining territory in Ukraine. You and your colleague Dan Lamothe reported on differing views in the Biden administration about the path forward for the United States and the West with regard to Ukraine. What's the disagreement?
2: Well, at this point, there's the question of, you know, how what sort of messaging are we doing about Ukraine right now? And also, what do all of the different parties want to do? Ukraine is, look, you heard in the statements of the two leaders of Ukraine and Russia just in the last 24 hours, Ukraine is not interested in ceding territory to make peace on a premature, what it considers a premature basis. Russia is, Putin is basically like flexing and saying, you haven't seen anything yet. I could keep going with this. This isn't even like, this is barely the beginning of what I could do. So that leads to the question of, okay, is there any grounds here to actually make a peaceful arrangement and to get out of this conflict in a way where nobody else has to die, which is what the United United States would like to see, both because the conflict is wreaking havoc on the international markets and on international stability, because it's a constant present threat to would Putin go further and try to pose any sort of threats to NATO that would require the West to lean in even harder than it has been right now with supplying Ukrainians with weapons and with the the sanctions to counter and and punish Russia for what it's doing. Um, And then just the basic question that is the immediate one, right, of how much more um, appetite is there in the United States for continuing to flow weapons, high-grade, very, very cutting-edge weapons to Ukraine, so it can continue to mount this counteroffensive against Russia. The West has been pretty clear that, except for the occasional volunteer, we are not sending in our units of troops who could fight a war with Russia, because we do not want to fight a direct head-to-head war with Russia. But Um, There has been tension between Ukraine and the United States about are we sending enough? Should we be sending more? And tension at home in the United States about how much are we willing to budget for this war? How much are we willing to be all in at a time in which our economy is starting to be reeling as well because of the general state of what's going on in the world and how this conflict has thrown it into disarray?
1: Right the, the Biden administration has already committed 7 billion dollars in in weapons and other security assistance and at the at the G7 summit uh, last week president Biden along with a, a bunch of other leaders pledged support to the Ukrainian cause for quote as long as it takes I, i'm wondering two things one how unified is that position within NATO and will the american people be in the fight with Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes.
2: Yeah, this is the thing, there's always more nuance behind those public proclamations than than the, than the you'd see at first blush. So as long as it takes, I mean, right now, if you listen to the way the Ukrainian and the Russian leaders are talking, that could be years. It could be more than years. What if, I mean, at this point, even the Ukrainian President Zelensky acknowledged it's gonna be hard to get back all the territory that they've lost to Russia thus far. And yet he's saying he's not willing to budge on ceding territory. So you could be talking about a fight that goes on for decades, even if it really, really, really does start to grind into a form of stalemate, which, frankly, at this point, yes, Russia is slowly gaining territory and Ukraine is slowly pushing them back in certain places. But generally speaking, this is not a fast war anymore. This is really, really getting stuck, even as both sides make gains and push each other back in this sort of arm wrestling contest for will Russia be able to lay claim to the entirety of the East and the South of, of the country of Ukraine. Um, but you make a really good point that the president can say these things in on the international stage and other world leaders can say these things in the international stage, but they have to deal with what the realities are at home. And at this point, I think that you probably have some appetite left in Congress to greenlight the extra funds that are needed for supporting these flows of weapons, for supporting the whole in it as long as it takes attitude basically to help Ukraine. But it's not indefinite because we're talking about things. I mean, look, the last package was $40 billion, over 20 billion of which was going to is, is going to specific weapons. Right. You can do that sometimes you can do that for a number of times and that package will last you another few months still too but there comes a point at which you're already hearing republicans saying are we winning this you're already hearing democrats saying look we don't like forever wars when that starts to reach a critical mass which i will grant you it is not there yet right but the fact that you're starting to hear people scratch and saying okay wait a second i i don't know if i'm totally on board with this forever that tells you that that ironclad commitment that the president is communicating is not so ironclad at home. And at a certain point, especially as we start to head closer to the midterms, if there are political shakeups in the midterms, you could start to see that patience really change. And then the question is, does the United States, does the West start to pressure Ukraine into making a deal that it clearly does not want to make yet, but maybe forced to out of expediency if it runs out of its pipeline? This, this This pipeline of support from the West has in many ways been fueling their ability to carry out this war not to discount the incredible will of the Ukrainian people to keep fighting, which will which will not die even if the streams of weapons starts to flag, but it's been a compound team effort thus far. And if one piece of that handshake starts to weaken, it could really alter the state of things on the ground. And, and I'm not sure that the West has the same degree of commitment to seeing it through as long as it takes, as at this point, the Russians and the Ukrainians um, are demonstrating on the battlefield.
1: Mm -hmm. And we got a couple of seconds left. I mean, the Ukrainian president, um, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, says that the military firepower that he's received from the West is starting to have an impact um, against the Russian military on on the battlefield. Are we seeing, is the alliance seeing evidence of that?
2: I think the alliance is seeing some evidence of that. I mean, look, you've been able to see in the tactical sphere, you've been able to see Ukraine take out certain missile attacks before they cause damage. They seized back Snake Island. They have been able to do damage to the Russian advance. They've been able to weaken and slow what the Russian advance would in a perfect world like to be. And that is real. And we've always been saying that the war and as it moves east, as they fight over Donbass, specifically the province of Donbass now, um, that it's going to be an artillery war. And so you need the firepower to be able to fight that. And yes, there is tension and arguments with, between Ukraine and the West about, we need more, we need more faster, please give us more of what you already committed and budgeted for now versus waiting, out, you know, waiting for more time to pass because we need everything and we're in a do or die moment now. I think the West is hoping that if this continues for a while, they wear Russia out because the Russian resupply lines are not as plentiful as they are in the United States because Russia is under sanctions because the West in the West is not. And they are hoping that the Russia gets tired out in this time that Ukraine can continue to do real damage even if it's not massively as huge as the ukrainians want it's not as overwhelming as they would like clearly they're still losing territory in parts but if russia just gets too tired and can't replenish itself then that is potentially something that would lead to a win but that's a gamble right now because remember russia's not hurting as badly as we expected and hoped they would because the price of oil has skyrocketed so they do have more tools at their disposal than we hoped they would at this juncture it, it's right. not going as anybody planned perfectly at this moment.
1: Karin Demergin, Pentagon correspondent for the Washington Post. As always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend.
2: You too, thank you.
1: I'm gonna keep the conversation going on a whole host of topics uh, with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we will find my Washington Post colleagues, Charles Lane and Eugene Robinson. Chuck, Gene, welcome back to First Look.
0: Hey, good morning, Jonathan. Jonathan.
1: Okay, so I had a whole bunch of topics pre-planned, but breaking news. So let's start with um, the first um, breaking news thing that we all woke up to, and that was the assassination of the uh, of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. I'd love for each of you to give your reaction. Gene, you go first.
3: Well, Shinzo Abe was a tremendously important figure in post-World War II Japan. And he. Wanted Japan to have a more assertive, uh, forward leaning foreign policy, defense policy. Uh, He was able to affect some of that change. Uh, He was the longest serving prime minister uh, that Japan ever had. And this is shocking in a nation, as you said, that had something like 10 uh, shootings, (laughs) 10 instances of gun violence last year. This is. This is a place where this you this sort of thing simply doesn't happen and so it's got to be a tremendous shock uh to the japanese people and uh, i I'm sure you know we we woke up to to this great surprise but in in japan it's it's just got to be unthinkable
1: mm-hmm um Chuck, your thoughts well, I echo a lot of what. Uh,
0: Gene just said. Uh, My family and I spent two months in Japan uh, on uh, fellowship in the mid-2000s, and I can testify it is one of the safest countries on the planet. It must be. Uh, Not only is there no gun violence, there's very little crime of any kind, Um, but there is a tendency in in Japanese society for sort of lone wolf attacks to occur, sort of madmen getting a hold of knives and Going on rampages. And this seems a politicized version of the same thing where someone has somehow fashioned a weapon at home himself and used it to assassinate uh, a man Eugene uh, rightly names a a very historic figure in um, 21st century Japan. So I imagine there's all kinds of soul searching going on in that country right now. And um, it is truly um, an unpredictable. Uh, climate we live in in the world, isn't it? Because even in a country that's safe, something like this can happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and and again, the the country is safe. The gun regulations are so so stringent that the that the assassin made his own gun um, right. to right. to assassinate um, the former prime minister. Let's talk about the second piece of breaking news they hit this morning, and that is the jobs numbers. 372,000 jobs created, better than expectations. The unemployment rate is at 3.6%. Um, your reactions to that, Gene?
3: Well, look, in, in normal circumstances, we, we would say this is a terrific number. Uh, uh, in, in unemployment is at like 3.6%. The economy is uh, it's really sort of roaring. Uh, The question is, how will uh, Wall Street and and the nation react to this? Uh, I I think it has to be fairly positive, at least. But uh, once again, everybody's going to talk about inflation uh, and whether or not that is abating. That's sort of the the main economic topic now. Uh, To my mind, this number doesn't tell us that inflation is is necessarily going to get worse or that it's not going to abate or that what the Fed is doing is not going to work. Uh, but some people may see it that way. Other people will see this as kind of a Goldilocks number, uh, economy still going strong, uh, but not too strong. Uh, it it seems to me to be a, 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 a not just a good number, but a but a a, a story that the administration can tell about the economy. That's a pretty positive one.
1: And and, and Chuck, I would love your reaction to the to the jobs numbers. Three hundred seventy two thousand jobs created. Three point six six percent unemployment. But how should we be looking at those numbers in relation to all of these fears, well, one, inflation, and two, fears of, of recession? Should we expect the Federal Reserve to go ahead with that 75 basis point rate increase that people have been talking about that could happen at their July meeting?
0: They have certainly signaled as loudly as they can without actually committing to it that they are going to be very aggressive on fighting inflation, that that is their top priority and this jobs number tells me that they're on they're going to continue on track to that because um, we're not seeing though the economy may be slowing we're not seeing that show up in disastrous results for hiring there have been layoffs here and there Uh, labor force participation which is an important number ticked down slightly in this report so there's some softness here and there. But my goodness, 3.6% unemployment is a, is, a, is a good number if we can sustain that. Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, has often said that he thinks there's a possibility for a soft landing based on the fact that there are so many unfilled job offers in the economy, and there still are. So his theory is if you slow the economy enough to sort of uh, end those vacancies without actually destroying existing jobs, you can sort of make a clean getaway. and I agree with Gene. This is by no means a definitive verdict on how that's all going, but I think he might find this an encouraging result.
1: So we've got 3.6 percent unemployment. We have businesses have hundreds of thousands of unfilled positions. I'm no economist, but correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't 3.6 percent unemployment basically called um, what's that economic term of?
3: Of full our, employment, we call it. Full,
1: full,
0: employment. Like full, full employment. Well, the, the problem with it is, Jonathan, what they target is what they call the non-accelerating inflation rate unemployment. And we have, <laughs> accelerating, we have accelerating inflation right now. I think the the weakness in this report, if I may add one thing, is wage growth, which is very strong in nominal terms. But when you adjust it for the high inflation, people are losing money, even though their paychecks seem larger. And that, I think, is what's contributing to people's sense around the country that the economy is worse than a 3.6 unemployment number may suggest.
1: Uh, let's move on to, um, of
3: course, you don't want. um, Well, you don't want that wage number to be going uh, much higher or much faster, though, because that just fuels inflation. So you want you want the economy to slow down a little bit, but not enough to throw us into a recession. That's, that's, the, that's the fine line that Jay Powell is trying to walk.
1: That's really, I, I, am, so, I am so tempted to keep going down the, this, <laughs> this road because I have another follow-up question. But we, we have to talk about the other what, um, big news today, and that is the former White House counsel in the Trump administration, uh, Pat Cipollone, testifying today before the January 6th committee. Um, Chuck, how vital is his testimony? Well, he
0: certainly didn't want to give it, which is always a good indication that it's has been important. <laughs> um, and uh, I think it it's all you know in the light of Cassidy Hutchinson's remarks, comments, testimony, which were so dramatic about what Pat Cibloni was saying and doing on the day uh, of the events, where he was in profane terms talking about the threat that this riot was posing to Mike Pence. And she was pleading with him to intervene with Mark Meadows to do more. So I guess they're going to want him to elaborate on that. And I I guess it's 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 a it's targeted in a way at Mark Meadows, who's been reluctant, who hasn't testified himself. And uh, there won't be any on camera drama, though, about this. This is going on behind closed doors. And I suppose that's one thing they may have conceded to him to get him to come testify. But later on, when they do go public with their hearings, we can expect to see a videotape uh, of what You know, maybe some of the highlights of what he says,
1: right, Jane? I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, um, Chuck. That his interview is behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. but it will be videotaped. And as we have seen in the six previous hearings, the the committee is not shy about rolling the videotape and showing people what people what people have said. uh, under oath, so even though his testimony will will be behind closed doors, that doesn't diminish the power of what he what he tells the committee, does it?
3: Well, no, it doesn't. I don't think the committee is necessarily unhappy that this won't be sort of live and in, in color uh, unfolding before your eyes. The committee likes to know what every witness is going to say before the witness gets gets goes on television basically in a televised hearing. Uh, and so I, I think they'll be pleased to, to hear him out behind closed doors rather than uh, just splash uh, out there. They want to hear, number one, will he confirm the testimony, a lot of the testimony that Cassidy Hutchinson uh, gave? Does he have more to add about uh, Mark Meadows and others uh, in the White House? Presumably, he's not going to talk uh, very much, if at all, about his uh, one-on-one or his direct conversations with former President Trump. Uh, I think he he will claim executive privilege or attorney-client privilege or some combination of those two. But he can certainly talk about what was going on in the West Wing on that day and on the days leading up to that day. Uh, and I think that that could be quite illuminating. Uh, and I don't, again, I don't think it displeases the committee necessarily that he will he will he will tell it all to them first before they reveal reveal it all to us. Right.
1: right. That's a, that that is a, an excellent point. You know, Chuck. One thing that I keep thinking about it's when Cassidy Hutchinson testified that Pat Cipollone pleaded with her to not to she had to do everything possible to keep then president trump from going to the capitol because if that happened quote we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable to me that is the quote the statement from from <laughs> pat cipollone am i wrong in thinking that that's the that could be the ball game there if he confirms that to the committee
0: well it certainly helps those who would argue that this committee is sort of the prelude to some kind of criminal referral for either other officials of the trump white house or president trump himself but remember that if you think about it like a lawyer as i'm sure pat cipollone will encourage Mm -hmm. the committee to do it's a pretty vague statement uh and it could have he could say oh yes i just told her that because i wanted to alarm her into doing something i didn't really mean it literally so I think a lot's going to depend on how able they how much they are able to pin him down on the precise meaning of those words and what actual crimes he thought might be involved. And um, and then, of course, once they pin him down or attempt to pin him down, we'll all get a look at it later.
1: I mean, Given everything that we've heard, Gene, in in the six hearings, mm-hmm. plus the you know in the moment reporting, because we all lived through this, we all watched it with our own eyes, um, and and have, have written about it, is there any wiggle room for Pat Cipollone here to say, well, I was just trying to <laughs> just trying to alarm her to mm-hmm. get her to to keep the president from going there? I didn't really mean it.
3: Well, no, it doesn't sound like that's a whole lot of wiggle room. It, it, it sounds, certainly from her testimony and from what we know that day, it sounds as if he was pretty exercised on that day. And and why wouldn't he be? Uh, why wouldn't anybody in the White House be exercised at seeing what was happening and the vice president uh, uh, and, and Congress under threat from uh, this violent mob? Uh, and the president trying to get up there, it's, it's, it's crazy. And so, of course, he would be alarmed, and I think he's going to have to own up to that. Uh, I am curious as to what other details or or facets of the story he has potentially to disclose. He was places that Cassidy Huss- Hutchinson wasn't. He had conversations with other people other than former President Trump that, Cassie Hutchinson would not be privileged to. Presumably, gonna, they're going to ask him questions about that stuff as well. The committee, the committee, might know of some of these other encounters or conversations from other witnesses they've had testify before, so they might have specific things to ask him about. So it. it could cover territory, not just her Mm -hmm. confirming or or not confirming her testimony, but it could go in any number of different directions.
1: Right. Okay, we've got two minutes left and you each wrote uh, an important column uh, this week that I want you to talk about in now less than a minute each. Chuck, you wrote a column this week about what's going on with Attorney General Merrick Garland and civil rights organizations pleading with him to not seek the death penalty for the, the Buffalo, the Buffalo shooter. What's that about?
0: Well, some family members of the victims in that racially motivated massacre are actually supportive of the federal government seeking capital punishment, which would not be available under New York law, but is available under federal law. Uh, whereas civil rights groups who, for principal reasons related to the racist mm-hmm. bias in past capital punishment, oppose it? And I wrote about the dilemma this poses, because if any crime in our society is worthy of capital punishment, in my personal view, it would be something like this. It's very similar of to in my mind to the Dylan Roof um, crime in South Carolina, wh- in right. which he was sentenced to death. So Merrick Garland has a really tough call to make here. Does he respect the wishes of some family? Does he uh, side with the civil rights group? And what are the implications for other federal cases that in which, despite the administration's moratorium on the death penalty, in the Roof case and Dzhokhar Chonayev, they have continued to support those death penalties on appeal.
1: And one thing we should also remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, Chuck, that Attorney General General Merrick Garland, one of the first cases he um, investigated was the Oklahoma City bombing, where Timothy McVeigh was sentenced to death, right?
0: Yes, he has in right. in effect. Merrick Garland has a track record on seeking the death penalty for extreme right wing violence.
1: Right, and 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 lastly, Gina, I'm sorry, we're like right up against it. But you wrote a column focusing on Abraham Lincoln's famous House divided speech in 1858, which was about slavery. And you said Republicans are recklessly testing, <clears throat> excuse me, Lincoln's warning that a nation divided um, against itself cannot stand. What are the biggest or the biggest division in America right now
3: well, the one we' I'm certainly thinking about, in the prompt of the column was on abortion, but we are we are divided on so many things, and the Supreme Court, the conservative majority on the supreme Court is i fear and believe going to accentuate and and increase those divisions with a series of rulings they have already made a series of rulings on guns, on abortion, on the environment uh, that have sharpened divisions. And I think that's going to continue. I think this majority is determined to uh, to roll back a lot of the jurisprudence of the last 50 years. And that's going to be incredibly divisive. Uh, and uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better.
1: Right. And it's not just a majority. It is a supermajority with uh, 6-3 conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court. Eugene Robinson, Charles Lane, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you,
0: John. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with this series, subscribe to Washington Post's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.